0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a sci.
2: Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we're doing a little bit of a pulse check on respiratory illness season because we, we're in it now and discussing where we're at with COVID, flu, and RSV. So let's set the stage a little bit. So 4.25 million annual deaths, so 4.25 million people die every year, and at least 6% of the world's deaths and disabilities are due to acute respiratory infections. So as of 2019, 17.2 billion with a B, upper respiratory infections accounted for almost 43% of all cause illnesses globally. Now, when we look at lower respiratory illnesses specifically, in 2019, there were almost 500 million incident cases and 2.4 million deaths due to lower respiratory illness. And the global age standardized incidence and death rates for lower respiratory illness were uh, about 6,234 per 100,000 in 2019, which represents a 24% and 49% decrease, respectively, since 1990.
0: Now, that's really encouraging because it suggests that a lot of the measures that we've been taking to reduce disease burden, illness, and mortality for many of these are working, right? We have better therapeutic interventions. We have earlier diagnostics. We have antivirals for for things like influenza. And the reason that we're talking, of course, COVID, flu, and RSV is because we now have vaccines for for those three. When you're looking at um, acute respiratory infections and lower respiratory illness, the major players are influenza viruses, influenza viruses, uh, human metanumoviruses, coronaviruses, which, now include SARS-CoV-2, but there also are the the human coronaviruses that cause um, like common colds. Um, you have respiratory syncytial virus, and then the rhinoviruses, which are also viruses that cause the hu- you know the common cold. So you know these are all different species and different families of viruses, but they're all able to infect uh, humans, other mammals, and and many of them can also infect other species such as birds and so on. So. So when we're talking specifically about COVID-19, the flu, and RSV, we're talking about three specific and different virus groups. So COVID-19 is caused by SARS-CoV-2, which is SARS coronavirus 2, and this is in the coronavirus family. Coronaviruses are uh, positive sense single-strand RNA viruses, and they're enveloped. Many human viruses or many pathogenic viruses are enveloped and that facilitates the ability of the virus to interact and infect with our cells. The influenza viruses are a very big family of viruses, um, broadly including influenzas A, B, C, D, and E. We typically talk mostly about influenza A and influenza B viruses. Those are the most common causes of illness in humans. But these are in the orthomyxovirus family. Now, these are also single-stranded RNA. They're what we call a negative sense RNA. And the unique thing about the influenza viruses is that they have a segmented genome. So what that means is that their RNA is not in a single piece like it is in the case of SARS-CoV-2 or other RNA viruses, but it's in smaller pieces. And that enables these influenza viruses to mutate very quickly because they can actually swap pieces of their genome. And this leads to their ability to mutate through two different processes. The typical antigenic drift that we hear a lot about, this is kind of your general mutation, but also antigenic shift, which leads to the evolution or the emergence of an entirely new influenza virus. And these can often lead to pandemic influenza. And then finally, the respiratory syncytial virus. This is in the paramyxovirus family. This is also a negative sense, single stranded RNA genome, but it's also it's not segmented like the influenza. So again, doesn't mutate through that that antigenic shift. Same is true for SARS-CoV two. So again, these are all three viruses of. Public health concern. And
2: as of this year, we now have vaccines for all three of them. And obviously, we're going to get into that. Just a couple of high level things to note here. So, one, you know, we get questions, or I guess we get comments sometimes that can you test positive for COVID if you actually have the flu and, you know, vice versa? And the answer is no, unless you're also (laughs) co-infected, right? Correct. Um, But no, these tests look specifically, what is it that they're testing for, Andrea? Is it the... So it really depends on the type
0: of test. But if we're talking about an antigen test, like a rapid test, that's going to be looking for a specific protein that's unique to the given virus. So in the case of SARS-CoV-2, that's going to be either a structural protein, or potentially the spike protein for something like influenza. This is going to be a protein like hemagglutinin or neuraminidase that are proteins that the influenza virus produces. So these proteins are very distinct and unique. And so you're not going to like falsely test positive for
2: one when you're infected with the other. Right. Okay. So I'm going to just read up. We wanted to pull the latest stats on COVID. So we're recording this on October 6th. I I think it's going to air um, a couple. Of weeks from now, but all right, so let's pull some stats. So right now, the test positivity is at around 11.6%. Um, that's a slight decrease, but if you look over the past month or so, it's been trending upwards, and remember, we're likely underestimating uh, because, you know, if people are testing at home, a lot of those, most people are not reporting those results, so, um, so yes, that's likely an underestimate. Uh, Emergency department visits, uh, we're seeing about 1.8% diagnosed as COVID 19. So, in terms of the people who are showing up to the ED, about 2% are diagnosed with COVID. We're seeing about 20,000 hospital admissions per week. And right now, 2.7% of all deaths in the U.S. are due to COVID 19. If you look at trends longitudinally, you'll see that we're we're on an uptick right now. We're we're in a surge and that's why it's kind of a good thing that we recently, and obviously this is the big update, we have some updates in the COVID vaccine world. In the U.S., of course, we're U.S.-based, so most of the data we present are going to be based
0: on CDC and FDA. But on September 11th, the FDA approved the updated COVID-19 vaccine formulations from both Moderna and Pfizer. And these are the mRNA-based vaccines for COVID-19. Both of these vaccines target the XBB.1.5 Omicron subvariant. And the following day, on September 12th, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices voted 13 to 1 in support of recommending the updated COVID-19 vaccine for everyone six months and older. So what that means is that everyone is eligible, six months and older, including those who are pregnant, including those who have gotten vaccines previously, um, can go get the updated vaccine and we are now calling this the 2023-2024 vaccine just for continuity's sake and to streamline and eliminate confusion. So if you go to make your vaccine appointment at this point, you're going to get the updated vaccine. Once this was approved by FDA, this removed the previous approval for the previous formulation, which was the bivalent formulation. That was a 1-1 a, a mixture of the parental strain of SARS-CoV-2 and the Omicron BA-4, BA-5 variant. Now, the other important news that just happened um, earlier this week, it was on October 3rd, is that FDA authorized the use of the Novavax, um, protein subunit-based COVID vaccine, and this is also an updated formulation that targets XBB.1.5. So this one is going to be authorized for emergency use authorization as opposed to FDA approval. That doesn't mean that it's less safe. It just is how the data were submitted and reviewed by FDA. This one is only going to be available for individuals 12 and up. Now, because this review and recommendation, Recommendation from FDA came after the CDC's ACIP meeting on September 12th. CDC actually stated on September 12th that if FDA deems Novavax data to be comparable to the existing mRNA vaccines, they don't need to meet again. So this vaccine will be available probably to everyone by the time this airs. So this vaccine, um, one of the advantages is because it's a protein-based, um, it's a little bit more shelf-stable, so it can be safely stored in a refrigerator. So this can be really advantageous for people in areas where it might be a little bit more challenging to store and access the mRNA-based
2: vaccines. So I was just going to say, so obviously the number one question that we're getting is which vaccine should I get? You know, is one better than the other? Andrea, how would you answer that question? <laughs> get the vaccine you're willing to get. So, you
0: know, there's there's obviously still quite a bit of misinformation about mRNA vaccines, and that has led to certain populations being hesitant to get those vaccines. Um, you know, I'll reiterate that mRNA vaccine technology and research has been going on for decades. Um, you know, we just saw the no Nobel Prize be awarded to to doctors Weisman and Kariko for their work specifically, which started in the 1990s um, on mRNA vaccine technology. Um, so, you know, if but if your concerns are not assuaged, um, the the Novavax vaccine uses a protein based technology, which um, you know is. Considered by some to be a little bit older, um, although, you know, the way that it's formulated is certainly not identical to other protein based vaccines. Efficacy is probably going to be comparable. Um, I'm not. Quite sure why people are saying that Novavax is is more robust and longer lasting because there aren't any data to suggest that. If you look at the initial clinical trial data when parental SARS CoV 2 was circulating, efficacy of Pfizer against symptomatic illness was 96%, Moderna was 98%, and Novavax trial was 90%. So similar across the board. um, That was before a lot of mutations occurred. Novavax has not been as widely used. so if you look at real-world evidence, you can't really compare the data because there have been billions of mRNA vaccines administered and, and not nearly as many Novavax vaccines administered. So, you know, all things considered, if that's the one you're more willing to get, get that one. If it's not available in your area, you should be perfectly happy to get the mRNA vaccines.
2: And we should note, so Andrea and I did not wait for Novavax, uh, and nor are we waiting for the holidays, which unfortunately some some people are, are waiting uh, for that. But, you know, as, as we said, there's a surge right now. And so we wanted to go ahead and get our vaccines. Uh, we both got the mRNA vaccine. Did we both? I got Moderna. Did you? I got, got Moderna Mater- also. Yeah. And that's because that was what was available at my local pharmacy. If they had Pfizer, I would have gotten Pfizer. If Novavax was the option, I would have gotten Novavax. There really was no preference. It was about which vaccine we could get the soonest and which was most accessible to us. We
0: both also happened to get our flu vaccines at the same exact time, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk quickly about the kids vaccine conversation. So as we mentioned, Novavax is only available for for individuals 12 and older, but everyone six months and older can go get an mRNA updated vaccine. And there's a lot of questions about the pediatric vaccines because the dosing schedules and the doses themselves were a little bit different depending on Pfizer versus Moderna. And so just, and and we'll have some posts on this as well, but anyone can get that updated vaccine. But the recommendation is if your children are um, younger than five years old and they didn't finish the original recommended dosing schedule, you want to complete that with the updated formulation. So essentially, if you, you got the Moderna series, that would have been two doses for the primary series. If you got those already, you can go get one dose of the updated vaccine. If you only got one dose of the Moderna series so far, you'll get two doses of the updated vaccine, one to complete the series and then a subsequent one at least two months after that final one. For the Pfizer one, it was three doses of the Pfizer vaccine. So again, if your kid only got one of those so far, they're eligible for two more to complete the series. And then you can also opt to get an an additional one, but you probably we won't need to at this point or if you got two doses then you would want to complete that with at least one dose of the updated formulation. Um so basically any of the gaps in the primary vaccine series you'll just get with the new formulation cuz that's the one that's available. There were also questions about mixing and matching. Now because the dosing was a little bit different between Moderna and Pfizer, generally kids five and under should try to stick with the same brand for the primary series. But actually yesterday, uh, October 5th, um, there was a roundtable or a fireside chat with CDC's Mandy Cohen, who's the new director. And she said, ultimately, if you don't have access to one or the other and it's not possible to stick with the same brand, you can mix and match for kids younger than five.
2: All right. Few things I wanted to go through. First of all, um, if you're not aware, we created a little vaccine calculator that makes it super simple. You could just, you know, put in information on the, what, what you've received. If you have received, any vaccines thus far. And it lets you know what you're eligible for. And at the time of this recording release, that will be updated based on the new recommendations. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And it'll be in our um, bio on Instagram. Couple of other things, uh, you should wait at le- Just commonly asked questions. You should wait uh, two months is the minimum after, uh, like if you received a previous COVID vaccine, you should wait at least two months b- before receiving this updated vaccine. You should also wait at least. Three months if you were previously sick with COVID. And Andrea, I think, did you want to just comment on that? It's at least three months. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, there's some people on social media who are telling people to postpone it longer. You know, I would say the range is probably three to six months. um, And the reason for that is if you're higher risk, you might not develop as robust an antibody or a T cell response after infection. You can opt to get it a little bit sooner in that window. People who are lower risk um, or, you know, maybe had generated a more robust immune response can can move to the end of the window. I know some people are saying 8 months. Um I haven't seen any convincing data that that's, you know, based on Data and especially now that we're in a surge and holidays are approaching and people are going to be engaging in high risk behavior, I would say and I think Peter Hotez even agreed with us. You know the, the range would be kind of three to six months um, after recent illness and and of course you know weigh in your own personal risk factors if you're going to be traveling if you're going to be going to a gathering. You know um, you can opt to to get vaccinated earlier in that range if you're not going to be you know interacting with people or engaging in potentially high risk behaviors or risk of exposure, then you can maybe um, move a little bit later in that range.
2: So I have just one or two more things to note about the, the COVID vaccine, but I just want to flag, you know, Andrea, you just made a, a really interesting, an important point about how people should assess sort of their risk. Because if you're going, let's say you're going to a wedding with 500 people, you know, that that's going to be a factor as you consider timing of things. But also don't forget that we have other tools in our tool belt when it Comes to mitigation. So we always say, you know, it's sort of like a, the Swiss cheese model of health risk, right? Vaccines are one layer, but then if you're in a high risk setting, like for example, if you're going to the doctor's office, you can wear a mask. That provides protection. You know, be outdoors whenever possible, open windows, improve ventilation whenever possible. There are other things that we can do that will help overall um, bring our risk down.
0: Yeah. And we can also, you know, if you're having a gathering, you can have people take rapid tests before gathering, which was, you know, a very widespread recommendation last year and the year before. So, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to reduce overall risk in addition to vaccines.
2: And I'm so glad you said that because we should remind people that they can go ahead um, and order those free COVID tests. The government, the federal government has reopened that, you know, mail program. So if you go to covidtest.gov, you can get, I think it's four no-cost tests mailed to you through the U.S. Postal Service. Yeah, absolutely. Just really quickly, a couple of other quick things. Actually, you know what? Can I just say one more thing about masking? Because, Andrea, you and I get this question all the time and just to be transparent, we are not masking all the time. This is our, uh, you know, we we made this decision based on our uh, risk factors. And, you know, we we basically, we're so confident in the vaccines that we think we know that our risk of hospitalization, severe illness or death is extremely low. You know, if cases continue to spike, we might revisit that. Maybe we do mask uh, in more situations. But right now, we're masking in high risk, situations. I will always mask, honestly, for as long as I live in doctor's offices to protect against transmission of a variety of infectious illnesses that could be transmitted via droplet transmission. It's sort of an easy no brainer. I also masked on uh, some recent uh, flights when I was on the plane. So, you know, it's you have to sort of use your best judgment. All right. Other couple of quick things I wanted to note before we move on to our next respiratory illness is no, this updated vaccine was not just tested in 10 mice. Um, That is absurd. So I mean, we've talked so much, it's almost like funny to talk about it now, you know, that these vaccines were so rigorously tested. We now have billions of data points. We have, you know, decades of data on the mRNA technology. We now have two plus years of data on these vaccines specifically. So what happens when the formulations are updated, the technology is not changing. It's just, and I'm going to butcher this, Andrew, you'll need to come in with the actual immunology terms, but it's, they're being updated based on the circulating strains. So the technology is not changing. You'll have to tell me what is changing, Andrew. <laughs> because the way that I'll say it is is not correct but because of that the safety there are no safety implications we're not changing anything except the strain that's being targeted so no we we did not just test this in 10 mice and actually Moderna did do clinical trials in humans on this updated vaccine. We just want to note that. And so just like how the flu vaccine is updated every year, we don't need to go through all of the clinical trials over again because, again, technology is not changing. It's just the strain that's targeted, that's changing?
0: So there is a very well-established regulatory process for this. It's called a bridging study. Um, And so if people are making claims, they um, don't have a sense of how medications are reviewed and regulated by the FDA. Bridging studies are very common. Um, Anytime a formulation is adjusted or altered, and essentially what you're doing is you're verifying that um, there's no change from the the tweaking you've made to the composition um, compared to the earlier FDA approved product. Um, this is, I'm not going to go into all of the regulatory steps involved, but this is something that's well established. So um, if you come up against somebody, um, just say, I guess you don't know what a bridging study is. So basically, all they did was uh, adjust for some of the structural changes in the spike protein. So when you're talking about mRNA, that means you're changing some of the codons, which are the three letter sequences of nucleotides that are in the RNA sequence that lead to different amino acids, which ultimately lead to your protein. So you changed a couple of the order of some of these chemical subunits so that the mRNA is more representative of what the new spike protein structure will look like. And that's all that was changed. So,
2: so, and maybe this is a good segue into our next respiratory illness, influenza, or with the, the virus, sorry. You know, you get, you're very big on the, the language. Very, there. I don't wanna Very that. important.
1: <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances,
2: So why do we, if, if the vaccines work so well, why do we have to get a new one every year? And we could ask this of COVID and maybe a flu and perhaps can segue. Andrea? Yeah. So I mean, the, the, there's there's a few reasons.
0: The you know you know we'll simplify this, but the first reason is the fact that influenza viruses, in particular, as I mentioned, they have two different ways of mutating, and that means that they can change very quickly. So the strains that are circulating most heavily a previous year may not even exist the following year. So as a result, we have to adjust the vaccine so that when our immune system encounters the newer viruses, we're better equipped to combat illness. Um, And the same is true for um, SARS-CoV-2, although actually to a lesser degree. Now, it's circulating quite rampantly for the last three years, so we've seen higher rates of mutation than you would expect when it's more stable, but that's the first reason. So as mutations occur, our immune response is not as perfectly matched as it was initially. So vaccinating with a newer formulation will augment our immune response. Um, Related to that is that all of these respiratory viruses initiate or infect through our respiratory tract. So there's an arm of our immune response called the mucosal immune response that's mediated primarily by kind of a different subset of antibodies. Um, These are called IgA, mucosal antibodies, and also some different types of immune cells that we're just not as effective at harnessing when we create vaccines. And what that means, and that's true for a lot of respiratory viruses, is that we just simply don't develop really long term immunity to them um, because of the nature of the different types of immune responses that are involved in infection and illness and even with vaccination. And of course, you know, that's going to lead to just a decline in, in general immune response over time. And so that's going to allow allow us to augment that in the absence of really being able to harness that mucosal immunity. The goal for all of these respiratory viruses is to have something universal but you know there are potentially hundreds of different influenza viruses out there all with slight differences and and you know there are different variants of SARS-CoV-2. And so there there isn't a universal vaccine right now. And so you know in the absence of that we have to tweak the current vaccine to be more representative of what we're what we're exposed to.
2: All right, so let's shift gears and talk specifically about flu. So the way that we get our information, we base a lot of our recommendations on the Southern Hemisphere, right? Because they have their flu season earlier than we do. And this year's Southern Hemisphere flu season had an earlier peak during April to May compared to typical peaks, which usually occur in June to July. Um, And of the specimens that tested positive for influenza, approximately 90% were flu type A and 10% were influenza type B. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, necessarily what happens in the Southern Hemisphere is going to happen here in the Northern Hemisphere. But that's what we use to sort of predict what the season will look like and how best to formulate um, our vaccines. And the flu
0: vaccines, the current flu vaccines, and this has been the case for quite some time, they're always what we call a quadrivalent, meaning they have or quadrivalent, depending on who you're talking to. They cover four different influenza. So typically it's always two influenza A's and two influenza B's. B's. So this year, uh, the two influenza A's are an H1N1 and an H3N2. Um, These relate to the different types of the proteins, the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. And then um, the 2B, one is what we call a Victoria lineage and one is a Yamagata lineage. So four different influenzas, and that's based on surveillance of the strains and the predominance of influenzas in the other half of the world.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So last flu season also started a little bit early um, with activity increasing uh, in the U.S. at the beginning of October of 2022, and then it peaked in early December. It caused an estimated 27 million illnesses and 300,000 hospitalizations. Um, So basically what the recommendation is now is that you should get your vaccine before the end of October. Both Andrea and I, we both received our flu vaccines already. We got them at this same time as our COVID vaccines, we get this question. Which the- you can do yes, you can do that, and and then and if you didn't, it's okay to get it at any time. There's no specific time period that you need to wait. It, it's fine to get them at the same time. And Andrew, you actually got a third vaccine at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I got a I got a hepatitis B vaccine, so I. Uh- tripled up this year. Um,
0: It was great. I feel very protected. And there's a lot of myths about flu vaccines. The flu vaccine is not an mRNA and it's not a protein vaccine either. It is an inactivated virus vaccine. It doesn't contain live flu virus. It doesn't contain heavy metals. It doesn't contain thimerosal. It doesn't contain a lot of things that circulate about it. It is completely safe to get. um, Anyone six months and older should get the flu vaccine. It is safe during pregnancy. You will not get the flu if you get the flu shot. I mean, you don't get the flu from the flu shot. It doesn't fully eliminate your risk of getting the flu, but it severely reduces the likelihood of getting the flu as well as reduce illness severity, risk of hospitalization, and risk of death. There is a nasal spray vaccine for the flu um, for people who really don't like needles. This is for people age 2 through 49 and, and not during pregnancy. This is an attenuated um, viral vaccine. And then for individuals who are older, there's actually a a larger antigen dose vaccine, which means it has more of the antigen um, to protect you against flu because as you age, um, you undergo a process called immunosenescence, which means that your immune system is not quite as reactive. Um, And you're also at higher risk for complications due to the flu, um, most commonly um, secondary infections like bacterial pneumonia. And so um, the vaccine for older Older individuals has more of the active ingredient, so that you can augment your immune response and protect you better against the flu.
2: And the good news is that um, we—I'm just lumping myself now—and with all the the uh, scientists working on this are working towards creating a combined flu and COVID vaccine. Was it Moderna who just res, uh, released some yeah, preliminary they had some data? Phase
0: Phase One, Phase Two trials on a combined vaccine. Yeah, and this has been, you know, obviously a, a topic of of interest a long time. We have some other combined vaccines, of course. There is actually a a hepatitis A, hepatitis B combined. We obviously have the MMR, which is um, measles, mumps, rubella. We have the Tdap, which is tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. So, you know, combined vaccines are great because it allows you to protect against multiple pathogens at the same time.
2: Right. So if you're listening to this right now and you haven't already received your flu vaccine, go ahead, get that out of the way, CVS, wherever you get your vaccines. And also, if you haven't received the updated COVID vaccine and you're eligible for it, you should just go ahead and knock them out at the same time. That's what we did. Easy peasy. And just for your age groups who are wondering about who should get the um, the high dose flu, it's
0: anyone 65 and older. Now, ideally, your pharmacist or your GP should be telling you about this. But just in case you're not aware, if you're 65 and older, you haven't gotten your flu shot, you want to get the, the high dose. This is basically it's a it's a four times dose, and it's going to
2: give you much better protection. Okay, okie dokie. Oh, and did we mention, you probably did, um, that if you have an egg allergy, you can yes. still receive a yes. flu vaccine. Absolutely. That's a common misconception. Yep. We hear that yep. all the time. Yep. Okay. And by the way, there's so much more that we can say about this. We are doing lots of posts constantly on COVID and flu and on this topic of RSV, and which we'll talk about. Yep. We have several podcast episodes yeah. <laughs> about
0: the flu as right. well, so you can go listen to those. Right.
2: Long COVID. Um, we, you know, we've said we we are not. We haven't talked a lot about COVID, uh, long COVID yet because we are still learning about it, right? There's a lot we don't know. Um, right now, you know, it encompasses, I forget how many symptoms or uh, it's something, it's at least two dozen symptoms right now. So it's very nonspecific. So it's sort of difficult to tease out what is actually long COVID um, versus other chronic conditions. But what we do know is that the vaccines do protect um, against long COVID. It reduces the likelihood of long COVID uh, by, I believe it's like 30 to 40 percent based on the latest data and also reduces the severity of long COVID if you get long COVID. So yes, even if you are young and healthy and you're not super concerned about being sick with COVID, you should know that even very mild or asymptomatic cases of COVID have led to long COVID and the vaccines are um, a a great tool to protect against that. All right. So let's move on to RSV. I'm just going to give some stats and then Andrea, maybe you can get into what what it actually is. But RSV is the leading cause of hospitalization among infants in the US. So between 60,000 to 80,000 kids under the age of five are hospitalized for RSV every year. And the majority of these children are actually infants. And then looking at the older population, so among adults over the age of 65, we see about 60,000 to 160,000 hospitalizations and between 6,000 and 10,000 deaths, uh, again, among adults over the age of 65. And Andrea, I think you just shared something. I haven't had a chance to read uh, the data, but we're seeing RSV leading to similar rates of hospitalization and Death, I believe, among yeah, adults it, it, over it the age of 65, right?
0: Compared compared to COVID as well. Right, compared so, to COVID. Yes. Yep. Yeah, so it's certainly a um, substantial public health concern. And up to this point, we really haven't had a ton of
2: options. All right, what is RSV, Andrea?
0: So RSV is respiratory syncytial virus. As I mentioned, it is in the family paromyxovirus. It is an RNA-based virus that is enveloped. It doesn't have a segmented genome, which means it doesn't mutate, obviously, as quickly as something like the influenza viruses. But it's very, very contagious. It obviously um, infects your respiratory tract. It can lead to systemic illness, but most commonly what we call lower respiratory tract disease, which can lead to complications such as pneumonia, which is essentially um, fluid buildup and compromised lung function, Um, bronchiolitis, which is inflammation of the bronchioles, which are the little pockets that help you breathe and transport oxygen. Um, And so, you know, it's obviously something that is um, a cause for concern, a severe reason for um, morbidity and mortality in, in individuals. And as Jess mentioned, the highest risk individuals are really, really young infants and um and older adults.
2: And the good news is that there was recently a flurry of approvals for amazing preventives, some vaccines and some monoclonal antibody uh, treatments, which are being used as preventatives for our highest risk populations. So with the 60 plus population, the first vaccine for adults 60 years and older, OrexV, was approved on May 3rd, 2023. So again, older adults, in particular those with underlying health conditions, such as heart or lung disease or weakened immune systems, are at high risk for severe disease caused by RSV. Andrew, did you want to present any? I know we have some data, but we probably um are also doing posts on this. Yeah, I can I can Summarize
0: it really quickly. So, so there's also a second vaccine, um, a a Brisvo, and that was also approved in May for individuals 60 and older. Um, So, there's two vaccines available for individuals 60 and older. These are both uh, protein based vaccines. So, they use a particular protein that's found in the RSV virus, and they are single dose vaccines. And they're, again, both administered intramuscularly, and they both have really good efficacy, very similar. So, if you're looking at um, erectile, When you're looking at um, efficacy during the first season of RSV after after vaccination, the efficacy of preventing confirmed, so lab-confirmed lower respiratory tract disease due to RSV is about 83%. That's fantastic. Um, If you look at Abrivzo, you're looking at about 89% um, prevention for symptomatic laboratory-confirmed lower respiratory tract disease. And even through the second RSV season, um, you still have pretty good good protection. I think with uh, RexV, it went down to about 56% and then about 78% for um, a Brivzo. And so um, what this means is that not only are you preventing infection, but you're preventing illness um, that's associated with RSV. On top of that, both of these vaccines were really effective in preventing medically attended associated lower respiratory tract disease. So these would want the, be ones that you might be getting hospitalized. You might Need respiratory care. I think for a RexV, it was 77.5% efficacy and 81% for a Brizzo. So, really, really effective at both preventing illness and um, medically. An illness that needs medical attention, um, which is really encouraging, because as Jess noted, we're seeing you know upwards of 150,000 hospitalizations and 10,000 deaths
2: every single year in this particular demographic. Mm-hmm. And those efficacy numbers are really impressive. I mean, these are amazing vaccines. And just one quick note: I'm so sorry I keep moving backwards. But one of the reasons we hear a lot of people don't get the flu vaccine is because oh, it's not effective. It's not effective. That's not true. Um, typically, the uh, rate range from about Thirty to sixty percent effective at preventing severe illness, hospitalization, and death. Last year, the vaccine was in that upper end. I, I forget. I don't know exactly what the what the uh, efficacy was, but I think it was around sixty um, percent. Um, and you know, these numbers are amazing. And, and also talking about COVID, the COVID vaccine, we need to remind people over and over again that the the primary purpose of the vaccine is not to prevent transmission. That was never the primary purpose of the vaccine, Um, the purpose of the vaccine is to prevent, again, severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And the vaccines are extremely good at that. All right, Andrea, what other preventatives do we have for RSV? So that same
0: vaccine, uh, Brivzo, Was also approved for use in pregnancy to prevent lower respiratory tract disease, um, essentially for infants. So, so this is basically going to be used during gestation, so 32 to 36 weeks of pregnancy. Um, Again, single dose vaccine, um, same dosage that would be for the individual 60 and older. And so, basically, what happens is during pregnancy, you're going to um, mount that immune response, you're going to develop that that immune protection, and that pathogen antibody transfer is going to go um, across the placenta into the developing fetus. So when the baby is born, they're going to have protection when they're at highest risk and too young to really have a fully formed immune system of their own. So that's that's another one. And then there's also this new preventative, which is a monoclonal antibody. So a monoclonal antibody is basically a protein that we've um, generated that utilizes the same principle that our B cells do in our body. Um, So we essentially engineer B cells. Well, they're kind of hybrid B cells in the lab and they spit out lots of these antibodies and then we can purify those and use those as a therapeutic. And this one is called a uh, Bay This was approved in May of 2023. This is for children under two years of, of age. And this would be essentially administered to kids, um, you know, essentially at birth or, or you know, in the window 24 year, 24 months or younger, and this would basically be administered in order to prevent severe lower respiratory tract disease uh, due to respiratory syncytial virus. So this is, again, an intramuscular injection, single dose, um, and this would offer protection to those young kids during that, that RSV season. So
2: if, let's say, um, you, you receive the vaccine during pregnancy, you're not then also supposed to get your infant the monoclonal and afebortus uh, uh, right am I I was m- I'm mixing up the names that's exactly right so it's yeah. sort of like a an either or situation yes
0: exactly so so typically you would get befortus if y- the mother did not get the RSV vaccine during the pregnancy you don't know whether or not she was vaccinated or um the the interval between the the vaccine during pregnancy and birth was less than 14 days. So say you got um you were pregnant, you got vaccinated at 36 weeks, but then you you went into early labor and you didn't have that that two week window, then you would get the fortis for your baby. I do want to note there is another monoclonal antibody that's been on the market for over 20 years. It's called synergis. Um, this is a monoclonal antibody for infants for for very specific use cases. And typically these are going to be premature infants who are six months of age or younger before RSV season starts, Um, those that have um, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, so this is like compromised lung function, or if they have um, congenital heart disease. So again, this one has been on the market for a while, but the uh, the availability of Bayfordis now is for, for all infants, which is fantastic.
2: I just I think we need to just take a moment before we wrap here to acknowledge how amazing it is that we live during a time when we have these amazing preventatives available to us. And it's it's so frustrating when we hear people downplay all three of these illnesses, which have killed millions of people. And, and, you know, they more than that, no, not more than that, but in addition to that, you know, people are hospitalized, and you have to think you're, you're home from from work or from school, and you know you don't want to get very sick if we could prevent it, and we have these safe and highly effective preventative tools. I, I it's it's so it's it I don't know. I find it difficult to wrap my mind around the fact that people take these things for granted. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it's, and, 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 you know, like we, we hear a lot, you know, people don't also think about this economic impact, not just on you personally, but, but our society, you know, missed work, cost of healthcare. I mean, we obviously don't live in a, in a society that has universal healthcare and that can be very expensive. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's billions of dollars every year that is a result of. These sorts of respiratory infections. Um, one last thing I want to note about Bay versus Abrisvo. So there's 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 this confusion, right? Like, so should I get the RSV vaccine if I'm pregnant, or should I wait till my baby's born and give them the man- monoclonal antibody? So there's a couple of things you kind of want to ask yourself, and of course, consult with your clinical team. But you know, if you get the vaccine during pregnancy, your baby's gonna essentially be born with passive antibodies, with protection at birth. It also means that the infant's not gonna need another. Their injection immediately after birth. So, you know, that's kind of nominal, but it's something to think about. Um, but there is some evidence that Bayfortis, which is the monoclonal antibody, may um, provide a little bit longer protection for your baby. So that's, again, if they're high risk or if you think they might be high risk, that might be something to factor in. But then the other thing is that um, it may be harder to access Bayfortis, the monoclonal antibody versus the vaccine, especially this season. So if you're later in your pregnancy, um, you know, those are all Factors that you want to consider.
2: All right, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Takeaway is go get your vaccines. <laughs>
0: yes. And also, super excited that we have all of these options um, for this upcoming RSV season. I, I can't wait to see some of the, the real world evidence that comes out of this. So, thanks for tuning in today. We hope you learned a thing or two. If you want to support our efforts and grow the impact of unbiased science, We welcome your contributions. We have a donation page on our website, a Venmo account, and a coffee page. We also have some fun, snarky merch. If you haven't seen any of it yet, you can get your own um, of Chemicals shirt, your anecdote is not evidence, signs is sexy, got aspartame, all the options on our website, www.unbiasedscipod.com. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, our handle is at unbiasedscipod, and all of our social channels at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a